Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the GLP Report podcast. Uh, today, we have another special guest, and I'm especially happy to have her on the show. If you have a favorite show at Disneyland Paris, I can guarantee you that she has worked on it. She is the brains, the creativity behind it. She's done so much for Disneyland Paris, um, and she's here with us uh, today. It is Katie Harris. Hello, I'm so happy to to be with you all today, and this is really exciting to talk about so so many things that I'm so passionate about. Thank you for being with us, and we we have a whole lot of questions about all of your shows, uh, so we're going to get into the details. Um, and as usual, um, I have with me Jeff from GLP Town Square. Hello, hello, <laughs> and Patrick from the GLP Report team. Hi, everybody. Um, so, Katie, um, let's start at the beginning. Um, you joined your Disney, I guess it was still your Disney at the time in 1993. Um, yeah. where, where did you start? What was your original role and how well, did you end up there? <laughs> there's a funny, there is a funny story, um, because the park opened in 1992 and I was in the UK, um, doing a national tour of 42nd street at the time. And I really wanted to do the auditions for Euro Disney because It sounds a cliche, but it's true that since the age of about 15, my dream was to work for Disney. And when I was 15, the only parks that you could work in were obviously in Florida or California. Um, and I applied for Florida when I was 18. You know, it was like I saw their audition notices. I had friends send me the posters of what city they were all in. And I contacted them. In those days, there was no Internet. Uh, I contacted them and I received a very nice letter saying that unless I was... I had a work permit to work in the States, they wouldn't even see me. So I was like, okay, well that's, you know, how am I, how am I going to work for Disney? So then um, when Euro Disney at the time opened and they had auditions in London, but I was on tour and I just couldn't get to them. And I was like, oh, this is so frustrating. So the following year, which was 93, um, I was, in between contracts and I had kind of started to change direction a little bit and go into more of a kind of health and fitness presenting world and my sister who was also a dancer said I'm going to go to the Disney audition I'm like hmm if she goes to the Disney audition and she gets a job with Disney I'm going to be so jealous so I thought well hey I'll come along with you Um, so I did. And actually a couple of friends um, from the show I had just finished, they were there too. So we all did the audition and there were a few of us that were kept at the very end. Uh, one of my very good friends, my sister, myself and, and a couple of others. And it all ended up that my friend and myself got offered contracts immediately. My sister did actually get offered a contract, but kind of six months later for a different show. So we all came over from London. Um, I remember driving over from Sussex, where I where I grew up, uh, driving over at the time there wasn't the tunnel. So we got on the ferry. Uh, we drove all the way through the night to get to uh, the site by, I think we had to stop at the service station. If, you ever, if you've ever driven, there's a ser service station just south of Ferry U. Um, and it was like, that was the only thing there. That was the only thing open at four o'clock in the morning. So we kind of sat it out there. And then we got to, um, to the Disney site and we had to go to the housing office to sign our housing forms and, and everything. It was, it was a huge adventure. Um, so I came over and I was cast in Beauty and the Beast show, which was at Videopolis at the time. Um, so I did a season there and we did all of the roles. We did the chef bets, we did the, you know, the jellies and, and another funny story. I was lucky enough to do my costume fittings in London before I came over because the costumes were created by a company called MBA out of London at the time, who did all of the West End shows and everything. And my friends and I got to this costume shop, you know, very great that we could, you know, have our costumes fitted to us. And we didn't know what we were going to be doing in the show. So they were going, oh, you're a villager and you're a triplet. Oh, and you're an orange jelly. And I go, what's an orange jelly? <laughs> like, what have I got myself in for here? Um, was that one a, of the cakes? It was, yes, it was? at the beginning, if you go back and watch the video, at the beginning of um, C'est La Fête, Be Our Guest, there are, there's an orange and there's a yellow jelly. And we had like these costumes that were molded, you know, hard shell jelly costumes on straps, basically. 
and we had to like you know, shimmy our way along stage. You couldn't do anything in these in these costumes, really. It was very difficult to dance in them. But yeah, so I always remember when they told me I was going to be an orange jelly. I was like, oh, what have I done here? What, what am I going into? Um, but it was fabulous. We had a great season. It was the season where there were 10 shows a day. So there were two casts. There was a morning cast and an afternoon cast, which suited me fine. I didn't have to get to work till I think we were two o'clock or something. Uh, first show was like 3.30 and we did back-to-back -back shows. So we didn't really have a lunch break as such. Um, we went through the five shows and we were out of there by 9.30 or something. So, you know, summer, it was, we had some nice weather. So we were able to go to the local lakes and it was fabulous. Um, so that was my first contract. And never, ever did I imagine that it would then end up being 24 years because the contract was four months. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's funny we um we had uh, Claire Jenkins on the show yes uh, a, a couple of months ago or I don't I can't even remember it's time is all warped these days um yes and she was also talking about how she was just there for a summer job and right. she is still she's still working there yeah. at, at you know the top level of of the resort with yeah. Natasha and all that and uh, it's incredible like uh, yeah. how how far you can go at, at Disney and Disney parks. And, and I remember Claire because Claire um, was working when she started in operations with a lot of, of our English group. And we all stayed in the apartments, the Disney apart apartments, Le Boiserie. And, you know, it was a little bit like college campus. We had, at the time, there were four of us to an apartment. So we had two double rooms. Um, and everybody was out on their balconies. Everybody was out on the grass. You know, every, at that time, everybody knew everybody. Um, and we would catch the bus, you know, to and from the apartments. But there was nothing else there. If everybody's been to the area, there was a, you know, what used to be the France Telecom building and the boiserie. And if anybody said to you, how do I find the boiserie? Oh, it's the pink building. And that's all there was around it. And I mean, you go now and it's it's crazy. But we used to wait for the bus in the sports bar, you know, the famous sports bar in Disney Village. And in those days, you could go to the sports bar and you were guaranteed, you knew at least half of the people in there because most of them were waiting the bus for the bus to get back to the apartments one way mm. or other. It was so much fun. It really was. It was, uh, it was a really great time. And, and people like Claire were there, you know, the long-termers who are still working in the park there generally had some kind of association with that group and, and, and that kind of social time. And it, ha it hasn't changed much. I mean, Disney Village is still sort of the cast hangout at Billy Bob's yeah. and Sports yeah. Bar. If you know any cast members, you know you're going you're gonna to run into Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, at any time of day or night. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and so you were, and we'll talk about that down the road um, when we talk about making a magician, but mm -hmm. obviously... Um, it must have been quite a throwback actually uh, creating the Beauty and the Beast scene for Mickey Magician after having been on the show 20 plus years before. Yes, it was. And it was, you know, I think that the music and the stories of, of all of the shows just are so ingrained. And I have so many different memories of each of them. You know, I think that going back and, and, and I worked with Tatiana as a choreographer on Mickey and the Magician. And it was great because she came in with a different approach for Be Our Guest in Mickey and the Magician. And we actually wanted something that was very different. Uh, we scaled it back a little bit um, just for you know safety reasons more than anything, but it was, it was a different approach and musically different. You know, when we did the musical arrangement for Mickey and the Magician, I wanted to stay away from the pure traditional arrangement that we had in the original show so we kind of deviated a little bit um but it's funny because even now you know I'm in contact with some of the cast from Beauty and the Beast back way when and we can still remember the choreography I mean when I hear Be Our Guest that's the choreography that comes into my head I mean literally <clears throat> I can do that chef that choreography like coming down the stairs and bing. Uh, so yeah it never leaves you never leaves you and so um almost 10 years later you joined the team of show directors in that very theater which is now called the Animagique theater um but I don't know did it have a different name before it was just called Animagique I guess because that was the name of the yeah. attraction it was built um, it was built for Animagique and so you worked on 
you know, this, this opening day show for Walt Disney Studios, Animagic, which ended up running how many years? 15, almost 15 um, years? Almost 15, I think. I think we were at 13, I think. Something which is, like that. Which is a long time for a show. I think only Wild West Show has beaten you on that one. Right. <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, so what... Um, it was also very different, I think, for a Disney park. Uh, dark rides have used black lights for a long time, right. but for entertainment, it was quite novel and different. Uh, could you tell us about sort of the vision behind it and like how all those choices were made and just putting it all together? Yes, it was It was interesting because I think it was a first for two reasons for us in at Disneyland Paris. It was not only was it a black light show with ultraviolet light, but it was also a puppet show. And we hadn't really had any puppet shows. So the learning curve was huge. Um, and I don't know whether you've seen the Little Mermaid show in Walt Disney World over here in Orlando. That has, you know, a, a black light element to it. So it was really building off that because they had seen how popular that type of entertainment was. And we had, you know, when we when you build a brand new park like that, Walt Disney Imagineering are very engaged and um, they are the drivers basically of the content. Um, so we knew that it was going to be a blacklight puppet show. Um, we worked around all sorts of different stories. Um, there was actually a director who came over from New York. Um, we worked with a puppet master from Bulgaria who was, you know, traditionally they do a lot of black light puppetry and a lot of bunraku puppetry as well, where you have three or four puppeteers working on the same puppet. Um, we worked with um, Michael who'd created uh, the Lion King puppets for, for Broadway in London. So it was an incredible team. And in actual fact, anybody who knows the show will realize that we actually opened with one version And about six months later, we morphed a couple of the scenes to another version. Um, the original version where we had a scene from Pinocchio uh, where we're inside Monstro, the whale. Um, and it was kind of problematic just because of the size of the puppets and, and, and everything. And the show originally at opening didn't have any vocal text to it. So none of the characters were speaking. It was all very musical. It was very creative, very artistic. Um, but we quickly realized that for our guests, we needed to have the vocal aspect and a little bit more of a verbalized story. Um, and although there was never a lot of speaking in Animagique, we, we did add the characters speaking throughout. And then we switched out the monstro scene for the Little Mermaid scene. And I think it just gave the whole show a, a better energy arc. Um, but it was really interesting working on it because I hadn't really done much puppetry. Um, so, you know, we were a creative team of, of quite many. Um, and I remember working in our studios and because of the blacklight, you know, we had to change the flooring. We had black, you know, screening up all over the, the, the sides of the walls. Um, they gave us all uh, special kind of sunglasses because we were in the UV for so long every day. Um, you know, and you'd come out after a, for a coffee break and something, you go, oh, oh, daylight, daylight. <laughs> <laughs> But it was fabulous. And, you know, there's only you need to see it with the lights on. You can't just rehearse everything, you know, without the lights on. Uh, and the Bunraku stuff was interesting as well, trying to get three or four people working one puppet, knowing that the cast rotates all the time. So, you know, normally you would have a trio of puppeteers who would always be the same puppeteers. Well, we had the added compl complication that, you know, our shows run seven days a week, so our cast work five days a week, so we have to switch them in and out. So it was a very long rehearsal process, um, very long rehearsal process and a lot of technical learnings as well. Brand new theater that was built, you know, for the show. Um, you know, so that in itself causes certain challenges. And then all of the puppets and how they were built. And we went with a French builder um, who again had never done anything like this before. So a lot of learning curves on materials and, and weight. Um, some of the puppets did turn out to be quite heavy at the beginning. So we did a little of engineering to, to work them out. Uh, and then training the cast and casting it. You know, we had never cast puppeteers before. We hadn't got puppeteers before. You know, we know that generally shows like that are run by our CDI parade performers. 
Um, so we did auditions and we cast them. We had puppet masters. It was a whole you know, opening of a whole new era, just like the stunt show was, you know, for the stunt show where we had to cast all of our drivers, yeah. uh, we had to cast all, all of our puppeteers, but it was an incredible experience. And actually, you know, Jay, who set me up today, that's where we met on Animagique 20, oh, really? however many years ago. Amazing. Yeah. He, he was an engineer who came over from Walt Disney World. Amazing. So, and and so talking about all those different teams, like why would you say just generally for all the shows you work on, like how, what is the, the process of creating a show? Does, does someone at a very high level comes to you with the idea and says, okay, you make this happen? Or what is, how many teams are involved? How many people come into play to, into so creating something? It, it kind of varies depending on which project. Um, and Sometimes the initial concept idea will come from marketing, for example, uh, for any of the seasonal products, you know, Halloween, Christmas, Easter, spring, carnival, kids carnival. Um, they were generally marketing driven seasons. So they would say, okay, we want uh, an outdoor event or we want a parade or we want, um, you know, uh, happening, we want fireworks, whatever. Uh, and then others are, we have a theater, we want to do a new show, what could that show be? And then when we were opening the Walt Disney Studios, we did weeks of brainstorming over what the whole entertainment program would be, what approach we wanted, what was the variety we wanted. So everyone is a little different. What is same in the process is, you know, we start with a concept. So we start with generally a, a brainstorming session or several um, where we come up with ideas, we maybe come up with characters we want to use or, you know, a particular music or a particular film we want to feature because we know that it's being re, you know, rebroadcast or it, the, the music is, you know, everybody's favorite. So we come up with kind of all of those elements and then brainstorm around ideas until we get two or three high level concepts that, that hold together. And that's normally a creative team. And again, it could be creative consultants that we bring from outside. It could be creative consultants from other parks around the world. It could be just the Disneyland Paris show director team. It, it, every, every time was a different mix. And then from there, we generally hone into one concept that we think, okay, this is, this is the great idea. Um, and we, you know, we write it up. So we write up, you know, what is it gonna be? It's going to be a show and in scene one, we're gonna tell this story, that story, et cetera until we have the story beats come through uh, with an idea of music, with an idea of choreography, with an idea of costumes, with an idea of cast. Um, and then from there, it just kind of gets developed. And as we go through each step, we add more members to the team. So we get to the point where we have our costume designer who comes in, our scenic designer, because if we want Mickey to be able to have a magical effect with his broom, we need the scenic designer to tell me that that can happen you know with the engineer so engineering is a huge part and we just create this team I would say the core team is the show director the producer the costume designer the scenic designer the engineer um, choreographer composer music arranger that's kind of the real core team um, and then that filters out again to casting to you know the production teams or the engineering study teams all the, the um, companies that actually make the scenery or the companies that actually make the costumes and, and that process goes all the way through. Um, and then quite often we'll do a workshop and that's really kind of the deciding time where we know whether this concept is holding fast or not, where we will go into a studio uh, for a week, we'll have maybe you know a cast of six or seven or eight uh, and we'll just flush out some of the numbers and we'll flush out some of the script, um, you know, be very rough, but we'll do a mini version, like a homemade version of what we think the show could be on a very basic level. Uh, and we, it tells us where there's holes, tells us again, if the energy curve is right, it tells us if, if, if it's interesting um, and if this is the right, the right direction. And then we learn from that and we keep moving forward. So it's uh, it is very much a joint process. I, I like to kind of think that the show director and the producer, because I do think we work hand in hand to kind of like the, the, you know, the chef d'orchestre, the conductor of an orchestra, because there are so many moving parts. And so 
some parts have to move together some parts can move on their own you know so it really is not only to have that artistic vision and I love being in the studio and actually directing the cast and creating it but it's also just keeping that overview that everything is pulling together with the same vision in mind. It sounds like a huge machine and then it's a machine that has to run every day seven days a week perfectly. Right. And, the, and there is that and when I speak to directors who don't do theme park shows um, you know that direct for theatre where they do one show a night where they have one cast they cast you know for a season of six months or whatever they don't have to worry about rotations they don't have to worry like if I've got eight people on stage how many people do I need in my total cast and do I need swings and how many places do they need to know and how many costumes does that work out you know it, it is an added layer um, in the theme park world in as much as we have to run it you know as you say five shows a day generally seven days a week for however many years and that goes for technical as well the reset time it's great to have a fabulous show with all the mechanics in the world but if it takes you two hours to reset the show that's not going to work you know looking back to mickey um mickey's winter wonderland when we had the ice you remember the ice show we used to have over yeah. at chaparral uh you know at one point we were we were wondering how far in the season we could take it that the ice you know, obviously starts to melt and the, the freezing time between shows got too long or things like that. Disney Dreams, same thing. The dark time. We wanted it, you know, we want the show to be at, in the dark in June, but the park at the time was closing at nine o'clock. Well, that's not going to work. So, you know, there's all of these other things to think about as well. But that's what makes it so special. I think, I think that's what makes you know, certainly creating for the Disney parks a really unique experience. Exactly. And talking about talking about unique experiences, there, there was one I was thinking about that I think you worked on. It was the High School Musical mobile stage show, which I think was quite different um, in, in the sense that it was it was out of the theater, but not even on an outdoor stage. It was a movable stage and it was sort of like a street party meets the right. stage meets everything. And also it was, um, it was, I feel kind of like a rushed, not rushed in the sense of the production, but it had to get to the parks because the show became so unexpectedly popular. Um, how yes. was it working on in such a different element and also trying to make it happen as you know, striking the iron, what is hot? Is that the expression? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so how was all this process with High School Musical? Um, High School Musical, I, I haven't thought about that one for a long time. That was so much fun because you're right, we put it together very quickly. Um, and just the, the energy of it, um, I don't think anybody had anticipated that the, the movie would be as popular in Europe as it was, you know, they had a version of the same type of show here in in um, in the studios park, but you know we never anticipated that, especially in France, that it would take off the way that it did. So I remember, you know, we knew that we wanted to have this mobile stage because we didn't have any space for it outside. We couldn't afford to build or have the time to build an outdoor stage. Um, we didn't have a theatre inside and it, you know the type of concept didn't lend itself to being indoors. It really wasn't outdoor. And we wanted it to be very interactive as well. But we didn't have enough material to do a full parade. Um, and I think it was at the time where the um, Disney Cinema on Parade, is that what we, we the title of the, yeah, the parade yeah, was? Parade. I think it was the, the time that that had just like come to a close as well. So we kind of wanted to fill the atmosphere outside. So we had a float and I'm trying to remember which float the base came from. I believe, I believe it was the Snow White float from the original Wonderful World of Disney Parade. And it was the float that we had used for the carolers previously for Christmas. We had a float where we had the carolers and we had it, I think we just had left it at, at Main Street um, with the, the Christmas carolers on it. So we took that base because we knew it was a drive unit and it was a drive unit that could turn on a very tight circle. Because the other the other thing was, A, we actually had to test it, got through the gates of the Walt Disney Studios because the gates are you know narrower than they, than they are in the Disneyland Park. Um, so once we got them through the gate, that was fine. It was like, well, where do we do this show? Because we had those two spots where we could stop the float, but it was like, well, can we get it there? Can we actually angle it there? 
Um, how do we get the audio there? Because we had a minimum amount of audio on the float, but then we had to, you know, add speakers in the park, but then you don't always have the space or the right poles to be able to put them. We didn't have the time to go digging down and putting new poles in the park and everything. So it was, it, it, it was, it was a little, I would say it was a little touch and go um, at the very beginning as to whether this would actually be possible. Uh, and then once we established it was possible, it was all systems go. And I remember we came over, we came over with my choreographer. Um, we came over here to, to Walt Disney World and we worked with the team over here for a week um, because a lot of the choreography came from the movie. So, you know, and the kids, if you got that wrong, they would tell you. So we learned it over here um, specifically for We're All In This Together. The rest of it, I think we created ourselves. Um, and then we went back and, you know, casting had done an awesome job. We had a lot of young, new uh, performers to Disney, a lot of new dancers that started with that show, who then came back time and time again to some of our shows and also have gone out into the into the dance and, and creative world in Paris, who some of them are doing, you know, extraordinary things. So it was a very young and dynamic cast. Um, we had singers, we had to come, we went over to the UK to get some of our vocalists, because at the time musical theatre was still, you know, limited uh, in, in Paris. And we also needed, you know, them to speak English and sing in English. And so it was, uh, it was a fun journey. It was a really fun journey. And I just remember being outside in the park. The worst thing about that show was being outside in the location that um, was up outside of what is now um, Stitch in that area outside of Tower and trying to find the center. You know, we would obviously be rehearsing in the park overnight, but just the way that the float was where we needed it to be for the speakers um, trying to line up the cast to make them, you know, equal around center. It, it, it was so difficult because we didn't seem to have any kind of real focal point. And I just remember my choreographer going, no, move them to the right. No, 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 that doesn't look right. It's like, let's shift over here. I mean, we found it in the end, but it was, uh, I always remember that distinctly on that show. It was like, how can this be so complicated? And I think the thing was, is that the way that the float was, with the driver, you would think that you would line it up with the basketball in the middle of the float, but the basket wasn't actually exactly in the middle of the float because of the driver at the front. So we had to shift everything down and then it just looked out of place. But that was a, just a little anecdote that I just remember spending a night going, I, am, I, am I tired? Am I not seeing things right? <laughs> And it's still, did it still have the stage in the middle at the time? Because now they've removed that sort of center stage on production courtyard. But I think yes, back then they had a right. central stage that you also had to deal with. Yes. Now it's kind of like an empty field and they can do whatever they want with it. Right. And there's actually a stage there, but. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, and I and I remember thinking, why are we not doing it on that stage? Um, but again, because that stage, if you remember, wasn't actually very high. And when we did the Lilo and Stitch show, which I think was previous to High School Musical, um, they built out like a kind of a catwalk section to the stage. Um, and I think we decided that it was just, A, we wanted to do two stops in the park because we had no parade. So High School Musical was kind of bridging that gap between a show and a parade as well. Um, so we, you know, we went away from using that stage location, but you're right. It was, so we were sandwiched in basically, yeah. uh, but it was fun. The kids really enjoyed that show. You know, it was very interactive. The dancers really enjoyed it. Um, and it was so cute to see the, the kids doing that wildcat choreography and they knew it. I mean, they all knew it. Incredible. And they'd come huge. up with their, they'd come up with their little wildcat cheerleader costumes and, <laughs> Yeah, lots of fun. It's sort of one of the things I remember from the early days of Walt Disney Studios is just how much entertainment was going on. No matter where you look, there was, you know, there was Animagique, there was, I, I, I think it's called Good Morning Walt Disney Studios. That was mm -hmm. always fun. Uh, there was, there was all sorts of things. We had Cine, great. we had Cine Follies um, with the actors, um, obviously the stunt show. Um, the Disney Channel was a working studio as such before we, we went over to Stitch. Um, I remember that. I remember going parade. into that attraction. You could see 
Um, yeah, there was TV in, studios. Was it Art Attack? I think it was afternoon? Art Attack, and then they had another TV show that was like a daily thing. I can't remember what it was called now. Um, that that they, they used to film there, and they would just shoot there live, and it was really giving sort of the life of the studios. Oh, here we are, and we have a live. Yeah, it wasn't a movie studio, but at least it was yeah. a little bit of a TV yeah. studio. And yeah. I think when that closed, like it was the last thing really that was live production in the entire park. Yeah, and I remember the on the tram tour, you had the the costuming department as well. Oh, that was always yeah. really really nice. fun to see. That was so that's fun. right. Yeah, we used to drive through the the workroom, and it's funny because the costuming department now not the workroom but the design department is actually in the disney channel building so that building did become you know a production hub but just not visible to guests anymore um but yeah i remember i remember going through those tv studios and that that the facilities they had there were incredible unfortunately you know i think at that time it was still considered too far outside of paris um, you know, today I think transport is different, and I think that Belgium Europe area has grown so much that actually people in Paris kind of quite enjoy coming out, and a lot of people moved out that way. But I think in those days it was still considered, oh, this is far outside of Paris, and you know, if you're in the TV world, you need to be in Paris. Um, so I think that that's why not so many productions ended up being filmed in the studios as maybe we had anticipated that they would be. Yeah. And so fast forward to the 20th anniversary and we had Disney Dreams, which I thought just changed completely. I think it brought Disneyland Paris to a new level because you always had fireworks in the summer. But this was a whole year round show that just I think it rounded off everybody's day in such a beautiful mm. way. Um, and I think part of that was the central character of Peter Pan's shadow. So... Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and then how the storyline developed outside of that? Yes. So I agree with you. I think Disney, uh, Disney Dreams was a turning point um, of scale of entertainment um, at Disneyland Paris. And it was also a very poetic show, which we, you know, we really wanted it to be because we wanted to speak to our European audiences. You know, I think we had got to the point where everybody and I and I say everybody kind of globally within the entertainment you know creative organization understood that our guests were not the same guests that were in Tokyo were not the same guests that were in Walt Disney World or California and that you know we wanted to create something that was really for our guests for that anniversary so um Steve Davidson who was the you know the original creative guru behind the show um was actually in a in a meeting in in Paris talking about you know this idea of doing a castle show and we had we had pulled together some teams to come up with some concept ideas so i think there were there was steve steven um myself and Eve Ollier, who was one of our designers from our team and then there were two outside um, creative companies that were all kind of invited to bid for you know this show and originally our brief was to make it Sleeping Beauty because Sleeping Beauty was the castle and we wanted to do something to celebrate Sleeping Beauty Castle um, obviously the brief was to make a show that could work originally during the day and during the night um, you know using the castle as a as a backdrop but with not you know, not a hundred thousand cast like we would see in shows in Tokyo. So it was very challenging to think about something that you could do because we all were erring towards projections, but obviously that doesn't work in the daytime. Um, so I think during one of those those kind of meeting scheduled um, project check-ins, Stephen was staying in the Disneyland Hotel. And you know, the Disneyland Hotel has a lot of, you know, very fantasy land imagery. And Peter Pan was there. And I think it just... As, as these ideas come up, you don't know where they come from. It's just like, oh, what about if? Um, and then it kind of grew from there. So uh, once we had established the creative team, Eve and I had presented our concept, but you know, I think globally everybody decided that Stephen had had the, the best idea and the most experience to lead us through. And he was Walt Disney Imagineering from Glendale. 
Um, so I joined forces with him and we had a big brainstorming session in the Imagineering Creative Center in Glendale. And we literally, we had like a massive storyboard around the, around the room of where Peter Pan's shadow could go through all different stories. Um, and, and we put some in and we're like, we had Lion King, we took Lion King out and then we put, I don't know, Pinocchio in and then we took, took Pinocchio out. And it was like a puzzle basically of all of the, the again, all the key moments of the key films that we wanted to establish. Uh, I always remember a discussion around Hunchback of Notre Dame because obviously for us in France and in Europe, it was a very beloved film and story. Whereas for the American audiences, they didn't really adhere to it that much. So we did have quite a discussion and I was, I was a very kind of strong advocate for keeping that moment in. And I'm, and I'm so glad that, you know, everybody agreed with me um, musically and visually as well. I think it was one of the most, you know, for me, it was, the, it was kind of the, the most beautiful sequence. Um, so, yeah, so we ended up basically like a, like a movie, we ended up with this huge storyboard around the room with, you know, the music that we wanted and then, the transitions and that's always the hardest part when you have any show it's great you have your scenes you get your scenes you know what you want to do but how do you get from one to the other and I think that's what makes a lot of the Disney shows very different to other maybe theme parks or just you know I would say cruise shows where you have scene after scene after scene but there's no link between them and that's where we really played with Peter Pan and his shadow and it's like okay this shadow can be a naughty shadow you know, we can, he can be cheeky, he can not do what he's supposed to do, you know. Um, and, you know, we had the idea of Peter Pan and Wendy at the beginning, uh, also to help us with the two languages. Again, we didn't want it to be very text heavy, but we did, you know, generally when you have to do it in English and French, it's much easier to have two characters so that you can bounce off each other. Uh, so, yeah, so the shadow really was the perfect perfect way for us to create those transitions uh, as we went from one scene to the next yeah and it was such an emotional show as well I remember right at the end every single time with the second start to the right there was just a tear in I think everybody's eyes but yeah oh and the star yeah the star was another thing we missed like the star the star (laughs) I know the star coming out of the top of the castle Mm. So again, you know, talk about giving the engineers something to, you know, lose a lot of sleep over. It's like, yes, I want that window to open and I want the star to come out, but you know, obviously it has to be big enough. You couldn't, we couldn't make the window area bigger. So the star had to be something that would unfold, Um, you know, with the mechanics in there, knowing that that tower probably wasn't particularly strong because it was never designed to hold a big metal star in there. and it's got to have lights on it and we want it to be led and we want it to have a laser coming out of it <laughs> just like, okay but they did it you know and i remember the first time we tested it and christophe mamaja who was one of our lighting designers and he you know he had done the castle lights all of the twinkle castle lights so he was very much into the, the research and development of new lighting elements and the first time we saw this star come out and it functioned and it turned on, it was so bright and it was only at 20% of its capacity. And, you know, and he said, well, you said you wanted it bright. And I was like, wow. <laughs> we, we then were joking that, you know, if we had put it up to full brightness, you could probably see it from the Eiffel Tower. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a mission to get that star in. But I think, I think you're right. It was a very emotional show and, working on it was a real labor of love in respect as we really built that show on the castle you know now when you do a projection show i would say that 90 percent of the show is built in the studio because you know the 3d formatting um the previs um facilities and even if we had a model of our real castle uh in our studio in california with the the video team it still wasn't, we didn't have enough technology at the time to be able to wrap it exactly as it was. So we pieced that show together on the castle. And I remember, you know, we pieced it together with the line animation because we had the animators working, animating. And also we didn't want them to finish the animation until we knew exactly what we wanted, you know, Mickey or, or the 
or Peter Pan and Shudder to actually do. Um, so on Quasimodo, you know, we wanted them to swing around the turret. So all of that was animated for the show. So it was, a, it was an incredible process. I mean, I learned so much because I had never touched projection before. Um, I'd done fireworks, but, you know, never projection. I fell in love with fountains. It's like to, to choreograph and, and work with fountains and music and light was just, it's, it's one of those things that's actually really soothing to work with because, you know, I don't press the buttons, <laughs> which is good because they wouldn't end up in, in any, any, any right order. But, you know, just to say, okay, I would like them to fan in and then fan out, but in this music, and Brian was great on the, on the, the keyboard programming, he got it, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was an amazing show to, to work on and an incredible team. Again, a team of, you know, video developers and designers, um, incredible technical and engineering with, with Chuck Davis and, and his teams, lasers. We had Claude, who was a French laser specialist who created these incredible images and shapes and just the laser over the water where it was just calm. You know, it was nothing was too much. And, and it's funny because Stephen, I always remember something that Stephen would say, you know, we would work on a bit of a sequence. I'm like saying we would work on maybe a minute or 90 seconds of a sequence. And then at the end of the evening, we would look at it and he'd go, yes, that's great. Now let's take 30% of it away. You know, because you always thought that you needed to do more, but actually we ended up taking a lot out um, to end up where we were, which is where I think that poetic, you know, atmosphere comes in because we didn't bombard everything, you know, in, in the guest faces altogether. Uh, so it was long. I mean, I think we did, I want to say it was almost three months of nights. Um, it was certainly, it was certainly a minimum of two. It wasn't closer to three. Uh, and we were working six nights a week. So we would come into the park at, you know, whatever time it closed. We generally hoped it was an early closing. Um, and we would get to work as soon as it's closed. And then we would run the castle back, you know, about half an hour before the park opened. So. I remember sort of one of the things that was, it was brought back, I think, for one night only. Yes. For, uh, and I remember they announced it that one morning. And I think that party sold out within maybe a couple of hours yes yeah <laughs> it was quite yeah, i remember <laughs> i remember ben ben spalding who was our producer on disney dreams he uh he had posted up on facebook that it was back and it was like oh and everybody's comments were like oh but it's funny because the, when we were building it um there were there were fans who were booking rooms in that disneyland hotel and taking pictures through the window. And it was so funny <laughs> because, yeah, it was so funny because on some of the forums at the time, you know, when you're sitting in the booth overnight, we're waiting, you know, for the tech team to program. And it, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of waiting. So, and it, was, it wasn't a very big booth at the time. And there were, you know, quite a few of us. We were kind of, sometimes we had to play musical chairs because there weren't enough chairs for people. But um, we would look at the forums and it was so interesting because they said, oh, I think we see, I don't know, Dumbo. And maybe this is, and, and I think it's this, and I think it's that. And it was like, <laughs> and it was so funny, just like reading what people thought we were actually doing. Um, and then I think they went and they put screens on the windows or something, I don't know, but it was, it was hysterical. But it yeah. was great because it was obviously a very anticipated show, you know, as we were building it. Yeah, and we've so we talked we touched a little bit on the the star and the and the turret there, but there was also other technical features such as the the flamethrowers and the there was the I can't remember what I don't really know what they technically call them, but the things in the water that sort of fanned out to project the on the water screens, water screens, yeah, yeah. the water yeah. screens. That that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> when when you were coming up with those ideas, how what was the sort of conversations and how did that all come to be? Oh, well, yes. The water screens were, uh, we did a lot of tests. We had um, an aquatic fountain company um, in France and we had worked with them. What had we worked with them on? I think it was Halloween. We had done, do you remember when we did the Passer, the, the um, Halloween overlay on one of the oh. steamboats? 
We had yes. worked with them. I believe it was on that or a hard ticket night or something. Um, anyway, we went down to that. They're based just outside of Strasbourg, if I remember rightly. And we went and we did some tests and we tested water screens because water screens with the wind are very diff difficult because as soon as you get too much wind, then you lose the screen and then you lose your image. And, um, and also we wanted to have something that we didn't see during the day. You know, we can't have two big support poles sticking out either side of the castle all day for everybody to see. So we had to design a, a system that, you know, was on hydraulics and came up and how did that work? Um, and then installing all of the fountains as well, they had to dig up the whole moat um, and install all of that. Uh, so there was a lot of um, pushback, you know, understandably so. Well, what do you mean you're going to dig up our moat? What do you mean you're going to put poles here? What do you mean you're going to put flamethrowers on the side of the castle? Uh, <laughs> um, and a lot of testing. So I think that there was a lot of testing that was done to prove that what we were doing was visually acceptable, but also safe, um, you know, because we had, you know, not been firing fireworks off the castle for years. Um, and we had been, you know, very regulated as to what we could do with any kind of pyro or any kind of flame effect and stuff. So we had a great, great technical team who really found every solution and literally went above and beyond to prove that this was safe. And that's where I think that having Stephen involved was massive because, you know, he's Walt Disney Imagineering. So he has access to those conversations, you know, with the Walt Disney Imagineering team who can then comfort, if you like, uh, and reassure the local parks teams. You know, and then we have, the local fire regulations and all of our on-site health and safety teams and, and everything. So yes, it was, there were a lot of testing evenings that went on um, until before we actually got the green light. And I have to say the laser was probably the last green light that we got um, very, very late in the process just because of the airport um, and the, the aviation authority who, we have to have approval from, um, but they weren't necessarily in any hurry to give us approval. So although we had, you know, all of our laser beams were terminated, so every one of them was targeted onto a building, um, there was no danger for the, for the aircraft. Proving that, you know, was something else. Um, and that was, that was the last minute. And I think we didn't get the approval until we were well, well, well into rehearsals, almost probably like, leading up towards the cast preview. I know it was a little hairy, um, but, but that was Ben's problem. Well, it was all of our problems, but uh, Ben was the one who I think went and sat in their office in the end and <laughs> just like waited for them to sign it. And you mentioned the forums. The thing I remember sort of so vividly was um, the removal of the trees from the, <laughs> right. the side yes. of the castle because people yes. were losing their minds at that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It How made sense in the end. How trees away? <laughs> How can you take our square trees away? And also, you know, one of the other things that we had was, you know, we we wanted to invade the park as little as, as possible, you know, from a visual intrusion standpoint. And obviously we had to have, you know, boarding up and, and everything, but we sequenced it. So it was never completely all boarded up at the same time. And I remember um, when we started to dig for the fountains, um, it was icy, you know, I think it was January and, and it might, it must be even before Christmas, it must've been like November, December time, but it got icy and they had to stop, you know, for about a week because there was nothing that they could do because of, because of the ice, you know, nobody in California and Florida, you don't think about that, but <laughs> they'd quickly learn in Disneyland Paris. Oh yeah. Seasons. Oh, cold. Uh, it was fun. It was lots of fun and lots of lots of learning curves. And, you know, if you look up onto the roofs of Main Street now, you don't see the projectors. You know, they've got special houses over them that look like extension of the roofs. And, and that's something that is really very special to Disney. Um, it's that real last detail that when you're creating something can seem like, oh, and we have to do this and we have to do that. But it's right because it it really 
lets the magic be magical. Um, and also that's what makes it different. That's what differentiates Disney from all of the other parks around the world is that level of detail. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's what we all do so well in the parks. Still on Disney Dreams, um, you also produced a number of special versions of Disney Dreams. I think uh, especially there were two different Christmas versions of Disney Dreams. Um, how did those come about? Like when was the decision made to have a Christmas version and not like a Halloween version or a spring version or summer version? And how was the story developed um, for those shows? Um, we always kind of intended to do seasonal kind of switch-ins because um, we did a switch-in with Brave as well from the original right. show. And I believe it was Jungle Book that got switched out, but it's been a little while, but I think that's what we switched out. Yeah. Um, and it was the idea was that creating a show like this, um, you know, which is a very big investment, you know, financially and from a human perspective and an infrastructure perspective, was that it was a show that would be easy to evolve. So, you know, when we took out Jungle Book and we put in Brave, it was an easy switch out. Um, <clears throat> same thing for the Christmas show. We wanted to be able to give seasonal representations of it. Um, we did talk about doing a Halloween show at one point, but I, I think it was never really necessary, never came to fruition because the Halloween season was already, you know, so vast. Um, but Christmas, we... You know, traditionally we had the tree lighting, we had had castle lights previously, um, we had had fireworks, we were reducing a little bit on the number of fireworks shows that we could do per year just because of authorities and authorizations. Um, so again, it was a request from marketing for the Christmas season that one of the new elements would be a new version of, of Disney Dreams for Christmas. Um, and I think between the two years, it was just, you know, we tried things the first year and we wanted to change them and think of new things for the second year, um, new scenes and new imagery. And I think that we probably had a little bit more time to develop for the second year. Um, the first version was uh, we were running off the back of Disney Dreams. And, you know, I think that we had got to a point where it's like, we have to do this fairly fast. Um, so I think that we made it better the second year, which is what we always strive to do. You know, we can't always get it all right all of the time. Um, but I think it's taking that and, and making it making it better. We wanted something seasonal that would really keep the atmosphere of Christmas and the holidays in the park. And I don't remember at the time, we didn't have the new Christmas tree at that point either. I don't believe, maybe the second year, but I think not the first year. Um, yeah, it was the second year, so, I think. Yeah, so... Um, you know, it was that kind of bridging, again, bridging through seasons as we switch from, you know, what we used to have to what, what we will have. And the small arts section, I remember with the Believe, I think, I think it's from the Polar yes. Express. That yeah. section always yeah. sort of set me off. I, I thought the that was so world. lovely. The small world pop-up cards. Yes. That, again, we played around with that for a long time in the park because, because of the nature of the animation. When we would see it, on the model in California, it was great. And then when we got it in the park, the first couple of times we watched it and we were all in the park going, oh, I feel a bit seasick <laughs> because, because you had to get the tempo and the speed of those images exactly right. Because otherwise it did, it kind of made you kind of feel a little bit woozy just because your eye is drawn to it all the time. But I agree, that was a beautiful section. And I remember recording, I mean, for all of this, the music for me is always such a huge, huge part. Um, and I think that, you know, it brings a lot of the emotion. I, and I've always said this for me, the shows, they come through paper, we come through images, we come through designs, whatever, workshops. When I hear the music is when visually in my mind, I see what can happen on stage or on the castle or in the parade or whatever. It's the music that speaks to me and everybody is a little different, but I, I really live through the music. And we were able to record at Abbey Road Studios um, for those shows. And I mean, that in itself is just an experience, you know, that's incredible. And I was really fortunate that I did several sessions at Abbey Road and memories that I will cherish forever, just 
listening to that orchestra playing these amazing arrangements, beautiful music, and and really, you know, very little tweaking needed to be done once it was recorded. They're incredible musicians. They get into the studio, they look at the music once, and boom, it's you know almost perfect. Crazy, crazy. But another part of you know the incredible creative experience that it is. And I mean, you started you started um, very strong with Eddie Magique, just going back to the music part because that song. Uh, it, <laughs> yes, you just hear it once. I'm not going to sing it, but no, you, I think I still could. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear it once, and it is guaranteed to get stuck in your head for the rest of your day. And even making magician, like let the magic shine. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this instrumental version that plays at the end of the show as yeah. you walk out, and that melody just stays in your head for yeah. at least half of the rest of your day yeah. um so it definitely you bring sort of the energy of the show yeah. with you with that music that gets stuck in your head yeah and it's funny you talk about the animagic song because i remember when we were trying to to work through the lyrics to that song because <laughs> i was like what do we have that rhymes to it and we ended up with with one of them was and mozambique and i'm like that's so random but it works it is so silly <laughs> It is the silliest Disney and song, was, I think. And it was, it was the, it, choreographically, it was always Rafiki who was like, I'm Mozambique. Makes sense, somehow. You know. Yeah, somehow. You, you brought it back. But um, yeah, no, I agree. I, the music is, is such a strong part. And I think that, you know, you, there is a skill to writing songs that stay in your, in your mind, but also songs that make you feel you know the emotions that we want our guests to feel um and interestingly you know you take a song like let it shine and you can have the up tempo you know clap along and then you can have that kind of mellow instrumental uh, you know celestial that's just very soothing and 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 we did that on purpose because you finish a show and you finish a show on an up and you know everybody's scrambling to get out and get their bags and everything it's just nice to give people that little bit of a breather so that also it helps without people stampeding out of the building but but it just gives you that little kind of transition back to going outside and you know carrying on onto the next attraction or whatever you're going to do um so and, yeah and i feel like as soon as the show is over you you sort of especially with disney you Im- immediately become nostalgic of what you just saw and i feel like the show sort of plays back in your head and so having this sort right. of like calming music you kind of like oh that was nice yeah. you know you yeah. get this sort of like in that yeah. mode like walking out it's really nice yeah, yeah and those yeah. extra sequences sometimes became some of my favorite things so mm-hmm. disney dreams with the uh, I can't remember the name of the song. I, I said my um, head, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, it's the Cara Dillon. Yes, Cara Dillon. Oh my goodness! Something about the name wishing. has gone. But yeah. that was just that was one that I remember. Everybody sort of turned around, starts running to the turnstiles, and every single night I would just stand there and just enjoy mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I remember rec- recording that in Abbey Road with her and her husband, who was just on the guitar and she was just singing. I was like, oh, this is just beautiful. What a moment! Um, come dream a dream. Yeah. Come dream a Come dream, dream, I think. dream. That's oh, right. Yeah, that's right. And the castle, was which was this... which was from a parade. The original song was was from a parade, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but again, you know, a a, a, a mellow version. Um, yeah, I, the music is is definitely something, again, very special. And 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 conjuring up the emotions, I think, is what's important. And what you said earlier about you know you relive the show at the end of end of the performance you know I always say that as a show director I had done my job if I had taken the guests and the audience somewhere else for 25 minutes half an hour for the length of the show that I can you know let them dream that I can let them just like be somewhere else just appreciating whatever it is we're watching at the time um, not thinking about what you're going to do next or what you're going to eat at you know, Videopolis afterwards or whatever, that you are just present and enjoying and leaving with some kind of memory. Um, and also another one of my missions as well was, especially for stage shows and parades, was to inspire the younger guests, you know, inspire the kids. I always like to say that if I could touch one 
child in each audience who would go on and, you know, learn to dance, learn to act, be interested in the arts as a patron, as a performer, as an artist, as a designer, whatever, then if I can drop that little bit of inspiration, because I mean, you know, I was inspired as a child, which is where I ended up, you know, following the, the career that I did. If I can, you know, leave that for one kid in each audience, then that's also my job, you know, being, being well done. Join us on the next episode of the GIP Report podcast with show director Katie Harris to talk about her other wonderful creations, including Frozen and, of course, Mickey and the Magician, as well as her work around the world. La, 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 animagique. Animagique, animagique, animagique. Magnifique, la 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 la, la magnifique, c'est magnifique, la 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 la